Good morning, church. So good to see so many of you. Thank you for not changing your mind about welcoming me in the new year. I don't know if that might be one of your resolutions, but my family sends their greetings. I promise they have nothing against you, but they're, when you have multiple children, they take turns having fevers. And so, you know, I started this a couple weeks ago, and now they're catching up. So they send their greetings to you, and hopefully, Lord willing, they will come next time I'll be here. Please turn in your Bibles to uh, the letter of First Timothy. First Timothy chapter 4. Today we'll be looking at verses 11 through 16. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11 through 16. Let me read the word. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, on this first Sunday of this new year that you have blessed us with, there is nowhere else that we would rather go but to your word and your word alone. We come to your word, Lord, because in your word is life. We come to your word because in your word is truth. We come to your word because in your word you reveal to us our sin and our desperate need for a Savior. Lord, I pray for the hearts of those here who do not know you. I pray that you would use me as an instrument in your hand to accurately exposit the truth of your word so that their hearts of stone, their deaf ears, and their blind eyes would be opened so that they would hear the truth of your word, that they would see their need for a Savior, and that they would come to you alone. We ask this in your name. Amen. Tis the season right now for New Year's resolutions to challenges and diets and other silly stuff like that. And oftentimes the pastors want to hop along on this uh, trend and they want to start off a new year with some kind of encouraging and motivating sermon to challenge the church, to um, give them a, an encouragement for the new and upcoming year. And so they look for a specific passage of scripture that perhaps will accomplish this goal. However, the beauty of expository preaching is that I don't have to look for a specific passage. I just look at the next one that I'm scheduled to preach. And so the passage that we read this morning was one that I was scheduled to preach at our church last Sunday. And I think this passage perfectly fits what we want to accomplish of encouragement and motivation for this upcoming year. 
Some of you might say, well, Tali, that is all good and great, and this passage was probably really motivational for you. For you are a preacher, you are young, and it seems like Paul is speaking directly to you. And believe me, this passage was encouraging, it was convicting, and it was motivational for sure. However, I don't want you to think that today you can just sit here and pretend like these words are not for you. For time and time again, even Paul would write in a second letter to Timothy reminding him that all Scripture is God-breathed. And therefore, we can't pick and choose passages which we think are for us and others which are not. And in fact, if you look with me at verse 11 of our text, the very command that Paul gives Timothy is to command and teach these things. In other words, that which Paul already wrote to Timothy and that which we will see today in our passage are not just for Timothy to take for himself as a young pastor, but it is also something that he was to take for himself and then to teach the believers in Ephesus. And therefore, the application is much broader than simply for elders or to shepherds. The application here is for all of us. These commands, these uh, encouragements and motivations written here by Apostle Paul are not just for Timothy, but they are for all the church here as well. In fact, David Platt in his commentary would write the following, which I think sums up the, the goal of this book very well. He would say, Paul's instruction here are meant for a wider audience than simply Timothy. The issues that arise in Ephesus are not confined to one time and one place. The fact that God chose to include this letter in the Bible means it is relevant for every child of God. 1 Timothy is God's word to all of us. And therefore, I hope that these words, which were primarily written to young Timothy, would be of encouragement to you on this first Sunday of this new year. And so what I did today is I grouped all of these commands and encouragements that Paul is writing to Timothy into four points. So those of you who like to take notes, I have four points for you, or if you will, four Bs. First, he's writing to Timothy and to all of us today to be an example. Be an example. Secondly, he's writing to Timothy and to all of us today to be in the Word. Be in the Word. Thirdly, he's encouraging Timothy and us to be of service. And finally, we'll conclude today with the final encouragement to be on alert. To be on alert. So let's begin with the first one. Verse 12 begins uh, with an interesting encouragement, interesting command. Let no one despise you for your youth. Uh, by now, you should probably not be surprised that Timothy was a young pastor. In fact, most commentators believe that at the time of receiving this first letter from Paul, Timothy was anywhere in his mid to early 30s. He was a young man. And while in our modern day, it's actually a great encouragement and something that maybe a lot of churches seek out is to have a young pastor in the Greek and Roman culture, youth was not considered something to be looked forward to or someone to put in the leadership positions. In fact, uh, they often would despise those who are young. 
As a young pastor myself, growing up in the Russian and Ukrainian culture, we had a say in which it kind of uh, I've heard multiple times mentioned towards me as well. It translates something like that. Your mother's milk still hasn't dried around your lips, and here you are teaching me. And that is kind of the premise here is Timothy. Paul is warning him, you will be despised. There will be some in the church of Ephesus who will look down at your youth. So what is this young Timothy to do? Or what is a young minister to do when he's receiving uh, you know, people who are looking down at him, reproach, and maybe even looking uh, you know, with scorn at his youth? What are some ways that we can respond? Sometimes it is tempting to respond with sarcasm or with humor. You know, you don't like my youth? Well, at least I don't make noises when I have to tie my shoes. Or sometimes uh, we respond by trying to pull rank and say, do you know who I am? Or we point to our seminary degrees on our walls and say, I might be young, but did you see what grade I got in my Hebrew class or in my Greek class? Or sometimes we, uh, we just simply go and cry in a corner when we are being scorned and despised for youth. Is that the response? No. Look how Paul is encouraging Timothy. In fact, in verse 12, it's a twofold command if you look there. First, he's telling him what not to do. He says, do not let others despise you for your youth. That's the negative. And then it comes with a positive. But instead, you are to be an example. That is Paul's suggestion. That is Paul's command to Timothy of how he's to fight those who will look down on his youth. Philip Ryken in his commentary says, how can a young minister gain the respect of his elders? Not by demanding it, obviously, or by throwing his weight around, but only by setting a godly example. The way to stop people from looking down on you is to make sure that they look up to you. And the way to do that is to lead by example. And so here Paul then gets very practical. Timothy, there's five specific areas, five ways in which I want you to set an example among the believers so that they would not despise you for your youth. And so he begins first by speech. He says, Timothy, I want you to set an example in your speech. The Greek word there is logos. Literally, be an example with your word. Be an example with the words that come out of your mouth. Guard your tongue. Be careful what you do. There's so many passages of scripture that talk about our tongue and the dangers and the benefits of it. But none come to my mind as quickly as James chapter 3 specifically dealing with the topic of teaching. There James would write, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, that they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue 
is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Brothers and sisters, the Word of God reminds us that God has given us our speech, our tongue, our words, our mouth. With it, we can bless, and unfortunately, with it, we also curse. With it, we can praise God and encourage and build up one another and forgive people and tell them that you love you, that, that you love them. And then with it, we also can tear people down. We can gossip about them and we can hurt them with our lips. And so Paul's first ex- uh, encouragement to Timothy is be an example in your speech. Secondly, he says, be an example in your conduct. It is one thing to say the right things, but he also wants Timothy to live in the right manner. He wants his conduct, his life, to match his speech, to match that which comes out of his mouth. Another commentator would say, what a minister's life ought to say is that he is God's man all the time, at home, at church, at the grocery store, on the freeway, on the playground, at the barber shop, everywhere. Our speech needs to be then matched by our conduct, by our life, by the way we walk. Thirdly, he would say, not only be an example in what you say and how you live, but also, Timothy, be an example in love. Well, sisters, as the recipients of God's love ourselves, we as believers should be the first ones to be an example in how we love others. The parable of the unforgiven servant speaks so much about that. As those who have been forgiven much, how dare we not forgive little? And therefore, as those who have been recipients of God's great love and mercy and grace, how do we not set an example in how we love those around us as well? 1 Corinthians 13 speaks volumes on that. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but I have no love, I am a noisy gun or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, I can quote all systematic theologies out there, and yet if I have no love, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have no love, I gain nothing. Fourth, he tells Timothy, to also be an example in your faith. Timothy must set an example in his trust in the God that he preaches. Does his life resemble an unwavered trust and hope and faith in his God that he preaches? Does he display an utter dependence on God and God alone? And finally, fifth, Timothy set an example in purity. You see, the city of Ephesus, we think we have it pretty bad here in California or in Vegas. city of Ephesus held the standard for many years for one of the most defiled and wicked cities in all the world. Having the temple of goddess Diana, or also known as the temple of Artemis, in its midst, for Timothy to live in purity, Timothy would quite literally stand out as as a sore thumb among the people there. Therefore, the encouragement to him is live in purity. And in fact, how much so is this true for us today? When time and time again we read of ministers and pastors failing in this area, not remaining faithful to their spouses, 
failing in pornography and in others' ways, and therefore he would write to young Timothy, you don't want others to look down on you for being young? Set an example, especially in your purity, especially in your faithfulness. And yet, some of you might say, well, this is great, Vitaly, once again, I am not a pastor and I am not young. And therefore, I don't see how this applies to me. But brothers and sisters, we are being despised regardless of our age or regardless of our stage of life. And therefore, I think this command, which he was commanded by Paul to then teach to others, applies to more than just ministers. In fact, I would go on to say that if you are retired, do not let others despise you for your retirement, but instead what? Be an example in what you say, in how you live, in your love, in your faith, and in your purity. Moms, if you're a stay-at-home mom and the Lord has blessed you for this season to be there for your children, do not let others or the society or the culture despise you for your opportunity to be a stay-at-home mom, but instead be an example in what you say, in how you live, in your love towards your children and towards your enemies and those around you, in your faith and dependence on God, and in your purity. If you're single, if you're married, if you're married with kids or if you're married without kids, if you're um, uh, married and have kids but they're off to college, whatever stage of life, whatever age that God has currently has you in, you are to set an example among believers, an example that ultimately would be the greatest evangelism to the unbelieving world around us, to the glory of God. And so then Paul goes on with the second point, the second uh, uh, set of commands by telling Timothy to be in the word. Verse 13, he says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Now here we have a unique challenge in verse 13. Usually Bible translators, I understand this is a very difficult task and one that I would probably never be very good in. And I know that they want to help us in the way in which they translate certain words or certain phrases. But sometimes in their efforts to be helpful, I think they actually can do the opposite. And here's what I mean to you, uh, for you. In verse 13, the term public reading, the word public is nowhere found in the Greek language. In fact, Greek simply reads, until I come, devote yourself to reading. And do you see how such a small addition can change the application of a passage? Because some of you might say, Vitaly, I don't have the ability or the means to read the Word of God publicly. Well, guess what? The Word of God says, devote yourself to the reading. And all of us have such opportunity. This is not Soviet Union where we're fighting for one copy of scripture that was being passed around from hand to hand, according to my grandpa, and they were just waiting until the other person would be done so that they can read and then they would pass the Bible along so that no one would catch them. We have 20 plus Bibles in our homes 
We have five different versions of apps on our phones and our iPads of the Word of God. We have audio Bibles in our car. We have podcasts. We have sermons everywhere that we can pull up. And so the Word of God commands us to devote ourselves to the reading of Scripture. Yes, public reading is important. In fact, that's why we do it here, and I'm grateful that your church practices this as well. However, first and foremost, before we go to publicly reading, we must begin to read the Word of God privately on our own. In fact, look at the pattern here. Before Timothy is commanded to exhort and to teach, he first needs to start with himself. Devote yourself to the reading. Begin in your room by yourself before you go on to publicly exhort, to publicly teach those around us. Joshua 1.8 would tell us, The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make yourself prosperous, and then you will have good success. New Testament also has the same pattern. Colossians 3.16, Paul would write to the church in Colossae, and he would say, Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, teaching and admonishing. Do you see the pattern again? Before you can teach and admonish, first let the word of God dwell in you richly, then you will be of benefit to serve those around you. It's like that airplane analogy that you probably have heard. Whenever the oxygen masks come down, what is the, the, the command that we are given? Is, is the command, put it on your children and make sure your children are fine and then worry about yourself? No. The command, which might seem selfish, but it's actually not, the command is ensure that you have oxygen so then you are capable and are effective and don't pass out when you're helping your children. In the same way, if you want to be effective in teaching and uh, rebuking and encouraging and uh, admonishing those around you, in order for you to be effective, you must be in the Word of God yourself first. We must be like that sponge that is filled with the Word of God so that whenever the stresses and pressures of the life press on us, what comes out is the Word of God. Unfortunately, too often that is not what comes out of us. 1 Peter 2 is another one of my favorite passages on this topic. And like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the Word. Brothers and sisters, we have so many young babies at our church. If you ever saw a hungry baby, you, this passage hits differently. A nursing child will not stop screaming and crying until it gets the milk. Imagine if that was us when it came to the Word of God. I, we often do that with physical food. We get cranky and hungry because we're hungry and we don't talk to me until you feed me. What if we did that with a spiritual word? Where, where you would value it as much as a newborn baby who's yearning for the mother's milk. And so the command that Peter gives is yearn for the word of God. 
so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And therefore, the command that Paul would then give Timothy the second time in second letter to Timothy chapter 4 would be, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Brothers, sisters, you don't have to be a minister or a pastor, and you don't have to be young to apply this command of being in the Word of God. All of us, regardless of our stage or age in life, we need to be saturated with the Word of God. So that when opportunity arises for public reading or for teaching or for evangelism, we would be prepared. We would be ready to go because we have devoted ourselves to the reading of God's word. That brings us to the third point in your notes. He then would write to Timothy in verses 14 and 15 to be of service. He would tell Timothy, do not neglect the gift that you have. What Paul is speaking about here specifically is Timothy's ordination service, in which Paul would himself lay hands on Timothy. And there would even be an auditory voice from God confirming and affirming Timothy and his gift of teaching and proclamation. And therefore, what Paul is encouraging Timothy is do not neglect it. Do not let this gift which God has given you go to waste. So important was this to Paul that he would write the same thing again in the second letter to Timothy. For, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. There he would say, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Some of your translations might say to stir up the gift of God. The beautiful imagery there is that of a campfire. You guys seen a campfire that is about to die. There, there's no visible flames, but there's still coals that are bright and orange. And so what he's saying to Timothy there is, you need to fan it into flame. You need to put some oxygen on those coals. You need to add some more wood there so that the fire would spring back up. And that is that command to Timothy hears. Timothy, you need to let your gift of God be used. Do not bury it. Do not neglect it. Do not ignore it. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Some believe that Timothy struggled with being timid or that he would be one who would be ashamed or, or fearful of, of using his gift. And so Paul would command him, not just once, but also in his second letter, Timothy, do not neglect it. Don't ignore it. Don't bury it. But instead, flame it. Uh, fan it into flames. Stir it up. Do not let your gift sit there on the bottom, but bring it to light. Use it to bless the congregation and those around you. 
And brothers and sisters, I hope the application here is obvious, and if it's not, I want you to know that Timothy is not the only one who has a gift given to him by God. In fact, your pastors and your elders in this congregation, or those who are on stage leading you in music, they're not the only gifted ones in the body of Christ. The Word of God says that if you have been born again, you have a gift given to you from God, not for you, but for you to use to bless the congregation. You have a gift given to you by God so that you can use it for service and ministry and ultimately the glory of God. First Peter 4 speaks of that. Look what it says. As some of you have received gift. No, that's not what First Peter 4 says. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks, whoever serves as one who serves, by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, the Word of God says that every one of you who has been born again has a gift given to him by God for the service of the body of Christ. Romans 12 continues this theme. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. It's a simple truth, but we forget this. Sometimes we think a church is simply those people in leadership, and that's their church, and they're the gifted ones, and they're the ones making sure that the church doesn't die. No. The way that God has designed his church is like a body with different members, all having varied purposes and gifts, all come together for the purpose of glorifying God, for proclamation of the word, and for then evangelism of that same word to the community around us. And so he would go on to say, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that are different, According to the grace given to us, let us use them. Brothers and sisters, we are so preoccupied with taking those tests in our American society of what kind of spiritual gift that I have, rather than actually using our gifts. Some of us take those questionnaires and then print our gift and put it in a frame and put it on our wall and look at it, rather than actually using it in the church of God. Some of you say, I don't know my gift. You don't know your gift? Start serving. It will become obvious to you. Others will point it out in you. Others will let you know if it's not your gift. (laughs) Use the gift which God has given you. And in fact, you know how it is with our physical bodies. When one of our physical members is not doing the job which God gave it to do, our whole body starts to feel it. If our eyes are not working properly, we feel it. If our back muscle that we didn't know existed, it starts to act out, sciatica nerve, what is that? And how do you develop it? And where did it come from? You start to feel it. How much more so in the spiritual body? When one of the members is not carrying out the gift which God has given you for the service of the body, the whole church feels it. 
The entire congregation feels it when one member is not using the gift which God has given it for the service of the church. And so, brothers and sisters, the command here to Timothy is also the command to to all of us. Stop neglecting your gift. Some of you know your gift, but it's easier just not to do it. It's easier just to come in, hear the sermon, shake some hands, and walk out instead of using your gift to serve others. But the Word of God says, flame it, fan it into flame, stir it up, use it. And in fact, look at verse 15. He then would tell Timothy not only not to neglect his gift, but he is to practice these things and immerse himself in that. In other words, you are to develop your gift. You are to get better in your gift. If it, is, if it is a gift of teaching or leadership, then find ways to get better. Go to classes, to seminary, uh, take some uh, lessons from someone, uh, keep reading and growing. Go to other churches where you can preach and serve if such opportunity arises. If it isn't hospitality, find ways in which you can be more hospitable. Talk how in your family, maybe we need to get a bigger table in our house so that more people can come and so that we can be more hospitable. Look for ways in which you can practice and immerse yourself in the gift that God has given you so that you do not just bury the gift which God has given you, but you develop your gift, not so that others can come and pat you on your back and say, oh, you're doing so good. But look what verse 15 ends with. So that others may see your perfection. Is that what it says? No. The goal of using our gifts is not so that we attain some status of perfection and so that they can put us then in a frame and worship us. No. The goal and purpose of of growing in our spiritual gifts is so that others may see your progress. And when brothers and sisters see each other's progress, do you know who receives the glory? Jesus would speak about that in Matthew 5. In the same way, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Our sisters, do you realize that one way in which God will be glorified is when all of us use our spiritual gifts and we immerse ourselves and practice them. And then when others see our progress, they will give God the glory. So when you use your spiritual gift, Your church benefits from it, and God receives the glory. So how dare we not use our gifts? If we don't use our gifts, then the church suffers, and God is not glorified. I hope that is reason enough for you to not let your gifts go to waste. Then Paul concludes this section of the fourth chapter by telling to Timothy in verse 16, Timothy, be on alert. His final admonition is regarding the spiritual well-being and the spiritual warfare. He wants to remind Timothy of the reality of the spiritual warfare that takes place all around us. In fact, if you would turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 20. This is not the first time that Paul was warning the elders in the church of Ephesus about the reality of spiritual warfare. 
Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 28. I believe this was written few years before Timothy was actually sent to the church in Ephesus, and yet the theme and the context is the same. He would say, pay careful attention to yourselves. Notice, starts with you. In the same way that our passage in 1 Timothy says, watch out for yourself first and to your teaching. Here in Acts 20, pay careful attention to yourself. Remember, in the same way we talked about the reading of God's word, before you can go and teach it and uh, give it to others, first devote yourself to the reading. Start with yourself. So here is also in our spiritual warfare, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Brothers and sisters, this is an important command to the minister of God, but it is also an important command to all of us who are believers. We need to be on alert. We need to be watchful. 1 Peter 5 would say, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. It seems like in the church, we have these two extremes. One extreme is those who kind of laugh at Satan and pretend that he's not real and say, well, you've been defeated, so you cannot hurt me. That is one extreme that is wrong, and I would actually venture to say is quite heretical in accordance to the Word of God. Then you have the other extreme in the church where people see Satan behind everything. Someone cuts you off on the freeway, that was Satan's doing. You trip and fall, that was Satan's doing. That is also an extreme that is quite wrong and heretical. Instead, the Word of God says our, our way in which we are to view spiritual warfare is we are to be sober-minded and watchful. We need to understand that, yes, the enemy has been defeated. Yes, death is no more. Jesus has overcome it. At the same time, the Word of God commands us multiple times to be on alert, to be watchful, beginning with ourselves and then also looking out for those around us. And there's a reason. In fact, there's a byproduct in our passage. Timothy, if you look out for yourself, and for your teaching, so if we go back to our passage in 4.16, there's going to be a byproduct. There's going to be a result that will come out of that. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, let's begin with what this passage is not saying. This passage is not saying that Timothy has some special and unique ability to save people. I know you guys long enough so that all of you can say yes and amen to the fact that the only way man can be saved is through the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other way, there is no other sacrifice that can be acceptable to God to end the enmity that exists between us and God. Jesus is the only way. 
So this passage is not saying that if Timothy is watchful, he can save people. What this passage is saying, though, is if Timothy is watchful for himself and for his teaching, he will be used by God to save those around him, including himself. In fact, if you study the letter of 1 Timothy, what he's commanding Timothy here is in stark contrast to what the false teachers did. Paul is telling Timothy, if you look for yourself, if you're on alert, if you're watchful for yourself and your teaching, the people around you will benefit from it. But look what the false teachers did. 1 Timothy 1.6, they swerved from the truth. They got away from the truth. And the byproduct of that was then they wandered away from it. 1 Timothy 1.19, by rejecting faith and conscience. So they rejected it. Instead of being watchful, they completely ignored it. And the end result and the byproduct of it, they made a shipwreck of their faith. 1 Timothy 4.1, they departed from faith because they, dece- they were deceited or they uh, devoted themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching. In other words, if Timothy is to do the very opposite of what the false teachers is doing, then he will be used of God for his own protection and for the protection of the congregation. Some of you might say, well, this is neat, but I'm not a minister. And, you know, I, do I even wrestle with such a things? Does this apply to me? There's a unique example that I want to bring up to you concerning wives and their unbelieving spouses. There seems to be a pattern in the Word of God that if you are watchful for yourself, if you are set yourself a life of example, right, as we talked about, in your speech, in your conduct, in your love, in your uh, purity, and in your faith, then God will use you for the salvation of those around you. He would write Peter in 1 Peter 3, 1 through 2. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. 1 Corinthians 7.14 has the same idea, that you would make others holy if you yourself are living in such a way that displays that holiness as well. So may that be an encouragement to you. If some of you have unbelieving spouses that you live with, the Word of God tells us to watch for yourself, watch for your teaching, grow in your sanctification, and God will use you, hopefully one day, for the salvation of your spouse. If you have unbelieving children, parents, our job is to continue teaching them, continue to disciple them, continue to watch for ourselves and for our teaching, for our life and our conduct, and hopefully Lord will use that for their growth, for their salvation as well. And so these are the commands that Paul gives Timothy, but also gives to all of us. So as we enter this new year, brothers and sisters, I hope that we apply these things in our own life. Regardless what age or stage God has you in your life right now, be an example to those around you. Be an example in what you say and how you live, in your love, in your faith, and your purity. And then secondly, regardless where God has you right now, you are to be in the Word of God. 
devote yourself to the reading of God's word. And when opportunity arises for you to do so publicly, you will be ready because you have already devoted yourself privately. Thirdly, he would say, be of service. God has given all of you, brothers and sisters, a spiritual gift. Use it. Don't bury it. Because when you don't use it, when you don't fan it into flame, the whole congregation is hurt by that. And God is not glorified. And finally, he would say, Timothy, be on alert. Watch for yourself. Watch for your teaching. And by doing so, you might save yourself and those around you as well. I hope this word from God was encouraging to us, convicting, and one that we can put into action in this new year. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that your word is active and sharper than a double-edged sword. It's hard to study your word and be simply tickled by it, for it's hard to be tickled by the double-edged sword. Rather, it penetrates deep. It reveals to us our sin. It shows us ways in which we are to grow. And thank you for the word in front of us today. Lord, I pray for those who do not know you yet. I pray that through the hearing of your word, they would come to know your son, that they would come to know him as their Lord and Savior, that they would repent of their sins, that they would trust in him alone. Father, and as we enter this new year, we yearn for your return. We yearn for you to come back for your bride, the church. And yet, if you still have us to live here, may we live in such a way that sets an example. May we live in such a way that proclaims with our life, with our actions to the unbelieving world around us, that our hope and that our faith is only found in you and you alone. We ask this in your name. Amen.